Welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Adam Hartstone-Rose, whose bustling functional morphology and comparative anatomy lab at North Carolina State University is not just giving us insight into the relationship between jaws and diet, but it's a place of mentoring for the next generation of scientists. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. By now, you are pretty aware that I have a fascination with skulls. And if you recall from my first episode with Dr. Julie Meachin, we talked a lot about skulls, but we also touched a little bit on teeth and how important they are and all the information they can tell us. So today I'm circling back to talk about teeth in If the Bite Fits uh, with Associate Professor of Biological Sciences, Dr. Adam Hartstone-Rose. He's got a pretty intense comparative anatomy and morphology lab going on at North Carolina State University, and he's here today to talk about all of the exciting research and also the mentoring that he's involved in with the next generation of scientists. I want to welcome Dr. HR to the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You know, I I was looking over your accomplishments and they are so many. Um, One of the things I noticed is you got your PhD in biological anthropology at Duke. And I was kind of wondering, how do you describe what you do, you know, generally speaking? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's one of the interesting parts of my career. Um, So as you noted, my CV is epic. It's, it's, it's almost, so it's almost like scattered. You almost need like a narration to go through it because I do so many different types of things. So yeah, indeed my PhD is in biological anthropology. Actually it's technically in biological anthropology and anatomy, which is quite cool because there are very few programs where you can get a doctorate in anatomy. Um, and in fact, that department is, changed its name after I graduated. So it doesn't even exist as an anatomy program anymore um, or as an, that's not an emphasis of it. And so it's pretty neat because I do consider myself to a great extent an anatomist. Um, and, uh, and so when I'm usually describing myself to um, my students or to uh, anybody, really, I explain that I'm, uh, I consider myself primarily a comparative anatomist and a functional morphologist. Okay. And so basically that means that we study how animals do what they do. And I explain to people that we, we study this 
across multiple levels of deadness. So this, <laughs> this always gets, so most people think dead is like binary. You're either dead or you're not dead. I um, Well, it's sort of like being pregnant, right? You're either pregnant exactly, or you're, you're not pregnant. Right. I mean, yeah. And so, but just like, like when you're pregnant, like you can be like a little pregnant or like right. very pregnant, like we study. <laughs> so, so that's kind of like how we study. So little kids think I'm about to start telling them I study zombies when I talk about this, but our, our levels of deadness. So we study... Um, everything from live animal feeding behavior. So that's the least dead you can be is alive. So that's like dead, <laughs> we call that dead sub-zero, right? That's, that's alive. And then okay. we do a lot of work on freshly dead things. So we do a lot of dissection work. That's probably the work that I'm most um, sort of known for in, in my uh, sort of circle of scientific peers. So we dissect like lemurs and tigers and gorillas and things like that. And then uh, we study a lot of bones and teeth. So that's more dead. That's the next level of deadness. So that we call that like, that's almost like a museum level dead. Okay. And then we also, like I, I do a lot of research um, in paleontology. So we study fossils. So that's the most dead you can be is like millions of years dead. Um, yes. and, we, and we study these things um, across uh, all of these different these spans. So I have some students that are really working on the behavioral part. Others are really working on the dissection part. But in essence, we're all asking very similar questions across the whole range. So for instance, a lot of what we study is um, feeding anatomy and adaptation. Mm -hmm. So we'll do research, for instance, on live lemurs, like over at the Duke Lemur Center. And then we will dissect the masticatory muscles of those same species, hopefully not the same animals, because we're not right. trying to kill them while we do the <laughs> behavioral work. Um, but we'll and we'll 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 study the soft tissue anatomy that allows them to do the types of feeding behaviors that they do. So, like um, different lemurs can eat foods of different sizes or different mechanical properties. So some lemurs can eat really tough foods. Others can only eat like soft fruits. And we actually have learned from our dissections, the, how the muscles allow them to do those different behaviors and eat those different diets. Right. And then we've, we study the skulls of those same species and we can sort of, we can learn to infer from the skulls how that the skulls allow for the soft tissue anatomy, which allows for the, the feeding behavior. And what's really cool is we can then use what we've learned from these live lemurs to go to extinct species and reconstruct the dietary behavior, for instance, of extinct species of lemurs. And we primarily do this in primates, but we also do this in carnivores. So I do a lot of research on saber-toothed tigers and dire wolves as well. Right. So, okay. So this is very exciting and, um, and there's so much for us to talk about. One thing that you may not realize is we almost were classmates in the biological anthropology department of Duke. I didn't know that you were I, at Duke. I was not, I got accepted for my PhD in the biological anthropology when it was still, that was its yeah, name BAA, uh -huh. in 2001. Oh, wow. I know. And I decided to go to Stony Brook instead. Now, Stony Brook and Duke have a very long history yeah. of togetherness. Some, yeah. <laughs> 
Some would, some would call it an incestuous relationship. We trade students and faculty back and forth. It's true. And so um, when I saw that, I thought, oh, wow, like we because, you know, we've never really talked about that. But yeah, I, I still have my acceptance letter because I was very proud. To, yeah, well, to Stony get Brook in. Was, was like the other really great program back then. Unfortunately, I think both programs have changed a lot in like the last like 20 years they um, have. Since, since we were there. But yeah, yeah, those were really kind of like the big axes. And we were unified because um, there that we were the two meccas of lemur lovers, I would say, in the academic world. And That's most right. people who studied lemurs to various extents at some point went through one of those two programs. Yeah, it's so fascinating, right? And so... So what I really, um, what I, I asked my, my guests a couple of questions cause I, I really like to get inside, you know, their heads about certain things. And one of them is, you know, how did you decide to become a scientist? Like, how did you even get into this path? Yeah. I love that question because I think it's so fundamental. I think it's important for all of our students. So I'm very student focused as we might get into talking about um, after, but I think it's important for all of our students to understand our pathways um, to this. So in that respect, it's one of my favorite questions. In another respect, I think I'm a really problematic person to answer that because I have a really crazy and not a very exemplary pathway to becoming the kind of scientist I am. So I'm intrigued. um, Yeah. So the reason that I think I'm a horrible example of this is because I have been essentially pathologically on this trail for my whole life. So I'm one of these kids that, you know, if you talk to somebody who knew me when I was five years old about what I would be doing when I was 40, they would basically describe exactly what it is that I do which I think is not a good example for most students because most of my students, you know, are on more of a winding path. And I've been on this ridiculously straight path. And I always trace it actually to all the way back as bizarre and absurd as this sounds to when I was 17 days old. So yeah. (laughs) Okay. How do you, that was very alive, right? In our scale. It was was very alive, (laughs) but barely. So that was the first level of liveness, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. So I trace it all the way back to then. And and so the reason that I can trace it all the way back to then is because that was the first time that I ever went to the American Museum of Natural History. So I grew up um, as a, uh, as a biologist in like one of the least biologically natural places on earth, right? I grew up in Manhattan and I was super lucky, um, to be born. So, so this is also, so, so some of my students call this the, um, 17 day old story and they roll their (laughs) eyes and some of it, some of my students call this the story of privilege and they roll their eyes. So either way, so so we'll come back to the privilege part in a bit, but I was lucky enough to grow up in New York and, and um, my apartment, it was a little itty bitty apartment on the upper West side. And it was, it was just 12 blocks from the museum. And for those of your listeners that um, don't know, the American museum of natural history is arguably the greatest natural history museum in the entire world. I would definitely make that argument and I'll fight anybody that fights on behalf of the Smithsonian or the natural history museum in London. The AMNH is, is near and dear to, to my heart. And, um, basically when I was little, I grew up there and, and originally the first time I went there, 
um, was actually, I like to imagine that it was because my father wanted me to become a biologist or a scientist. Mm -hmm. But the real answer is that I was a horrible baby. And I would cry unless I was being carried while somebody was like walking around. So all of us who are parents, like we know that babies can be like really a pain like this. And so sometimes babies just need to be carried and rocked. And essentially, my father just got tired of carrying me around our little itty bitty apartment. And he thought, hey, a museum is a good place to walk around. And so he took me all bundled up and all of the guards yelled at him because they thought I was too young to be out of the house. But um, but he, he, he took me around the museum and we basically went there every single weekend while I was a child. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so my little brother was born a couple of years later and it basically became the routine that the three Hearthstone Rose men went on every, every weekend. And I think probably we were just like, my dad was trying to give my mom a break. And so we just went to the museum every, every weekend. And I just, some of my youngest memories, my earliest memories are, were of like standing in front of dioramas, just the three of us. And we used to play games. Like we would see like who can find the most number of animals in the diorama. And so we'd stare and, and we'd look and we'd find little bugs and a little mouse hidden underneath the ostrich and things like that. And, um, and I, I just grew up with this love of nature and love of dinosaurs and of mammals. So the, the mammal hall at that museum is amazing. And, uh, and when I was about six years old, um, my cousin came to visit from Seattle. And we were very excited to take my cousin to the museum to show her our routine. And, um, and she wasn't anywhere near as mesmerized as she should have been. Like we really <laughs> loved this and she was not really into it but after we went to the museum. So we used to always walk home through Central Park because Central Park's amazing. On this occasion, my aunt insisted on going shoe shopping, which was more or less a nightmare for the three of us. Like we didn't <laughs> want to do this at all, but because my exotic, my very exciting cousin was visiting um, from all the way across the country. We went, uh, we walked home on a, a different way. And we walked via Columbus Avenue, which is like one of the commercial avenues on the Upper West Side. And I had never walked that way before. And about a block north of the museum was a store called Maxilla and Mandible. And at that store, they sold skulls and horns and taxidermy mounts and masks from Africa and shells and, you know, amazing stuff, butterflies and insects. And so unfortunately, we needed to go shoe shopping. And so we didn't stop at that store, but I was amazed by it. And so we walked a little further and my cousin went and she was trying on shoes and it was taking forever. And it turns out it was taking forever <laughs> because there was a mouse in the basement of the shoe store. So oh, they no. couldn't get the size shoes she needed. And so my brother and father and I were dying. We did not want to stand around a shoe store. And so he snuck us out of the, of the shoe store and we went back to Maxilla and Mandible. And when I walked in there, it was like something hit me. I felt like I was like struck by lightning because it was like the most amazing place on earth. And so it became part of our routine that every weekend we would go to the museum and then we'd go to Maxilla and Mandible and I would save up my allowance and I'd buy like a little jaw or a little, you know, skull. If I could save, wait enough weeks, I could buy like a fox skull or something like that. Wow. And so it was very exciting for me, but my father and my brother got tired of it, right? Because not that much changes in a store. And I was the one who was really into, into the bones and I started collecting skulls. And 
um, when I was 10 years old, uh, the manager of the store who we had gotten to know over these like past few years, um, he saw that my brother was like about to stage a revolt and was pulling on my father to, to get out of the store. And the manager, Ralph, he handed me a broom and he told my father that he would put me in a taxi when I was done. And so I started working at the store as a little kid. Um, I started out sweeping the floors and then I started cleaning the counters. And eventually, they, Ralph, who is a, a savvy businessman, he realized that customers thought it was really cool that this little kid was so into all this stuff. And so I, I became a really good salesperson. So I would sell the skulls and I'd tell all like these rich, like Upper West Side people like about all these weird animals. And so I started selling and I loved like, you know, the Christmas season because I was really good at, you know, making all these deals. But eventually I started working down in the basement of the store and that's where they had a beetle colony. So I learned how to like prepare skeletons and I learned how to mount skeletons and I learned how to make molds and casts and, you know, pin butterflies and beetle legs open and all of this amazing stuff. And um, I also got to know all of the scientists from the museum that would come after work and hang out at Maxwell and Mandible. And um, at some point, Ralph, who had become essentially like a second father to me, he, realized, he, he, he basically felt like I had learned what I could learn from Maxwell and Mandible. And he organized for me to start working with one of the scientists in the mammology department at the museum. And so when I was 12, I started working in mammology and I was learning from the curators and the collection managers how to like accession specimens. Um, and I started studying with one of the scientists who was teaching anatomy at Columbia. So I was learning like a college level anatomy course from a Columbia professor um, when I was, I was still, I guess, in middle school at that time. Um, and I was, I had free reign of the collection and I'd just go through the collection and look at like, you know, dozens of gorilla skulls and I'd find lemurs tucked away in this corner. I remember vividly opening one door one day into what I thought was a closet. And instead it was a gigantic room filled with elephant skulls, you know, wow. and it's just like the most amazing place. Yeah. And so I, at 12, I was working in mammology and then I started working in the anthropology department. And that's where I started meeting scientists who worked in Madagascar. What a wonderful story. And, and what a great opportunity you have to explore that museum, like behind the scenes when you were so young. I remember, uh, so I've studied prairie dogs and I was fortunate enough to be able to access the collection at the American Museum of Natural History of all the skulls and do all these measurements and and it just feels like such a, I don't know, when you, when you walk through those back rooms and you're, you're pulling out those drawers, there's just this really rich feeling of history there. And yeah, it's super special. Um, so the collections were made by like amazing people. So like, I remember some of the specimens were hunted by Theodore Roosevelt himself, you know, or they, yeah. or they go back and you can find the, you know, at the, that museum might have the original type specimen of prairie dogs, for instance. Right. You know, yes. So yeah. Systematic. So it's clear that as a young child, you were able to, you know, explore that museum, connect with your passion at that store. What a wonderful opportunity. I'm wondering today, you know, what is the way that you feel you most connect with nature? Is it still the skulls and the, you know, and the specimens or is there another way that you 
that you're able to connect to nature? That's an interesting question. I think in some respects, I'm what like what some some people like derogatorily call an armchair biologist. So I really like working on um, specimens from my desk or from a collection. Um, I've, I've spent a lot of time traveling around the world. I've been to Madagascar, including I've taken students to Madagascar. Um, I've been to Madagascar probably about a half a dozen times or more. Um, I've gone to South Africa more than a dozen times, most of the time with students. But when I go to these places, I'm usually seeking out collections of specimens to work on much more than, um, than sort of experiencing nature. I would say that my approach to biology, I'm, I'm very much like a, a quantitative biologist. Um, I get a little bit frustrated, you know, looking at an animal or like, you know, a specimen here or a specimen there. I want to understand how a species works on a larger level. And so I'm kind of like very driven by, by sample size and things like that. My students would probably tell you, and my, my children would definitely tell you that I'm not so much, um, I'm not really like, in, in, like as much of a biologist as I am, I'm not really into being in nature. It's one of the kind of the ironies. Like I love studying animals, but it sounds ridiculous, but I'm much more interested in like the, in animals in my freezer than I am in like being with live animals. Cause you know, animals in my freezer are always ready for me to study them. Um, and I can do anything with them, you know, and learn all about their biology. Whereas, you know, in nature, like I, I love, I've, I've spent hours like sitting with elephants in the wild and finding cheetahs and lions. And it's always an amazing experience, but I'm generally looking at them and thinking, how did they get that way? How does their, their bi biology work? How does their body work to allow them to be specialized? How can you have, you know, in one environment, a lion, a leopard, and a cheetah? And they are, are all different types of cats, and they're all different shapes of cats. But how can they all coexist and make this ecology work in balance without, you know, excluding one species from that environment? Well, I mean, I would say that's a totally valid and special way to connect. And speaking of cats, um, I'm going to just let my listeners know that Senor Antonio Botones Gatos has decided to crash this party. So I am now holding my microphone while he is purring. I don't know if it will be picked up on the mic. That, that but purring was, yeah, there was a little purring I heard and it, <laughs> it belonged to neither of us. That so. is correct. I am not purring. You are not purring, but he, he must have heard you talking about cats. So he said, okay, it's my time to shine. That was his cue. Um, and it's interesting because for me, when I'm out watching any kind of animal, and I've been really lucky as well to travel to many different places and see a lot of different species, I'm looking at them going, why are you doing what you're doing? Right. Um, why are you interacting in this way? Uh, how do you coexist with all these other species around you? Uh, what are the things that matter to you on a day to day basis? And so I, I, I'm more on the right on that ultimate kind of behavioral side. And and so I, it resonates for me, this idea of looking at them and saying, well, 
how did, how did you get to become that way to do that thing? And, uh, and so, and you're right. Animals in your freezer are much more accessible than mm -hmm. hoping and sitting for hours behind a tarp going, will they show up today? Yeah. And I don't have like the patience <laughs> that you behavioral people have, but I rely on you behavioral people, you know? So, so a lot of what I study is, um, is how, for instance, primates are adapted for different types of locomotion, you know, arboreality versus terrestriality. So is there some function of their arms that allow them to exist in trees versus on the ground or in a vertical posture versus a horizontal posture? And this type of work really relies on all of the all of you people in the field who are making these types of observations and really saying, you know, this species spends 70% of its life in the trees and 30% of the time on the ground. And I can then go and take that kind of information and I can see, does this animal's forearm musculature look differently than an animal that spends 100% of the time in the trees or 100% of the time on the ground. And so it's all part of the same continuum. I think it just plays to, um, you know, what are we each good at and passionate about? And I think I'm not good at patience. So like, I'm not good at, st at waiting and watching and, and, you know, counting how many minutes that animal is in the tree versus <laughs> how many minutes it's on the ground. I just want you to tell me so that I right. can go and I can tell you the anatomy. But well, then uh, of course, a lot of people are like, ew, I don't want to like have to look under the skin of our beloved animal or something right. like that. Or maybe you don't have the patience to study, you know, there are 14 or to 18 different muscles in the forearm and maybe wow. behavioral primatologists might not be patient enough to tease each one of those apart and try to find like the signal that we're looking for that tells yeah. about that adaptation. So it's a different type of patience, I guess. Yeah, it is because I don't have the patience for that. And I, I will <laughs> confess that that there have been a, a number of times where I accidentally fell asleep on a prairie dog colony because there wasn't much happening. It was very quiet and warm and the prairie dogs were eating or resting and, and I would just fall asleep apparently and be awakened when something exciting was happening. <laughs> um, so, you know, I may be patient, but you can also fall asleep out there um, watching yeah, things. <laughs> I vividly remember. So when I was 16, I, that was the first time I went to Madagascar. And the first lemurs that I studied were actually the Milne Edwards Fox. So I don't know if your listeners know our friend Lisa Patchouli, but Lisa is, um, is, is the student of one of the greatest primatologists of, you know, of today and of our last several decades, Pat Wright. And so I went to Madagascar and I studied her lemurs and the, the Milne Edward Shafak is one of the biggest lemurs in the world. It's a relatively kind of um, sedentary, it's a folivore. So it doesn't move around as much as like some of the other lemurs um, and it's diurnal. And, uh, and I just remember standing. So as a 16 year old thinking like, do I want to be like Jane Goodall? And do I want to be a field primatologist? And is this like exciting for me? And I have it like a very specific memory of standing on the side of a hill in a pile of leeches, like leeches falling <laughs> out my shoes, looking at this lemur that was just sitting there chewing on a leaf without moving for like 20 minutes. Then he was just like looking back down at me. And I was thinking like, what am I doing here? I can't do it. But then, <laughs> you know, just a few hours later, Pat gave me the skeleton of one of the lemurs that had died from one of her early seasons in the field. 
And I took that skeleton and I laid it out on the, on the table in such a way that she really felt like she saw her old friend again. And I was able to tell you about that animal and, um, and bring it back to like have meaning for somebody who knew that animal personally. And I think that that was the moment that was certainly the moment that Pat realized that I should be working on skeletons. Right. Um, I think it might've taken me a little bit longer to realize that maybe the, the behavioral primatology was not exactly for me. It's interesting that you say that, that sort of having the skeleton gives you a way to bring it back to life or someone even, you know, I, I feel that way. So I'm fascinated with skulls and bones and, but I also feel that I get this personal connection to the animal, to its life when I have some part of it. And, you know, I have the skull of, of one of my cats. Um, and it, and it means so much more to me than the ashes of another cat or my, my former dog. I so wish I had their skull. Like it just feels so personal. And <clears throat> And so, you know, I think it's wonderful that you were able to determine kind of what direction you wanted to head in. And I think that you sharing this is, is not just important for students, uh, but, but for listeners, you know, like sometimes we, we try a lot of different things and then we we're able to zero in on what, how, how we want to pursue that passion. Right. And so I'm curious of how did you get zeroed in. Uh, and we're going to talk about a lot of the cool work you've done on bite size and diet. And, um, but first I just kind of want to talk about how did you zero in on, you know, kind of movement and, and jaw or tooth morphology and how it relates to diet. So as I said earlier, I think that honestly, I'm most well known in our field for the muscular analysis that I do. So there are a lot of people who study skulls and, and teeth and a lot of people who study animal behavior, but there are only like a few dozen of us, I would say, that really specialize in analyzing how a muscle um, is physically put together in such a way to allow for a certain amount of force or a certain amount of stretch or speed. Um, and this is really something that I've become most well known for. And interestingly, it was not part of anything that I thought I wanted to study when I started graduate school. In fact, what ended up happening, so I've been, I've been obsessed with skulls for a very long time. Uh, you, your, your listeners can't hear, but we have a collection of over a thousand specimens in our lab. Wow. And um, so you're, you're gonna li link my website and one of our students at NC State took a video of like how cool my office is. And our oh yeah, collection. I'm super jealous by the way. Just yeah, to, I got a quick flash and I'm like, ooh. <laughs> I have so. the coolest office of anyone I know. I'm very proud of, of my office. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's really to a lot of the hard work of my students. So a lot of these specimens are specimens we've dissected and they clean them and, and prepare them so that we can study them further. And in fact, that's exactly how I started getting into muscles because um, when I was a graduate student, I started working with this really cool place called Carolina Tiger Rescue. So it's here in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. And um, I told them that I was interested in studying carnivores and, I, and, and collecting data on carnivores and building more of a collection of carnivore skulls. And 
they said, oh yeah, come by. We have some spec- some of our dearly beloved we, we have in, in our freezers and it'd be wonderful if there was a scientist who could do something with them. And I went down there and they had these amazing, basically precious objects, precious specimens. So they had tigers and they even had at that time a snow leopard and mm-hmm. a jaguar and a leopard. And these are all very rare animals. And I really wanted the skulls from them to because to, my dissertation was focused on skulls and teeth. But at the same time, I realized there is so much more data here than um, than just the bones and the teeth. And I felt almost a moral obligation to try to get more information out of them than just throwing them in a, in a beetle colony, for instance, and creating the skeletons. And so I started talking with one of my fellow graduate students who I didn't really know very well at the time. He's, a, he's now a professor at Johns Hopkins. His name is Jonathan Perry. And in fact, he, he got his PhD at Duke and then his postdoc at Stony Brook. John was, um, was already interested. He was studying lemur masticatory muscles. So he was studying the muscles that allow lemurs to to chew, right? And um, I knew he was studying muscles. And so I said, I've got these amazing cats. What can I do with them? Um, That's not just what is there anything I can learn from their muscles? And he said to me, well, do they have different diets? And that's a tricky question, because the truth is that regardless of how big a cat is, or how small it is, it eats meat, cats eat meat and nothing but meat. And so in ter- so John was interested in lemurs that eat hard diets or tough diets. So like lemurs that eat leaves versus lemurs that eat fruit and studying how their muscles allow the different, what we call mechanical properties of diets. So how hard is it to process those foods or how easy? And that wasn't variable in cats. Cats all eat basically vertebrate flesh. But what is interesting about cats is that some cats are specialists in eating animals that are very tiny, So for instance, there's this beautiful African long-legged cat called a serval, Mm -hmm. right? And servals really eat little mice, little rodents, or they might eat little birds, for instance, whereas there are some cats. So like the serval has a close relative called the caracal, which is kind of a big, like a tougher cat and more looks like an African bobcat kind of, except it's this beautiful sandy color and it has these feathery little tufts on its ears. And caracals, they also eat birds, but they are capable of killing animals that are larger than their own body size. And so here are two animals, the two, they're two, they're the closest relatives to each other. And yet they have specialized not in the different mechanical properties of their diets, but in the different prey size. And so what we did was we dissected the masticatory muscles of all of these cats, and we were able to show how each species is adapted to accommodate a gape to accommodate opening their mouth to a size that correlates with the relative size of their prey. Um, And so, yeah, so that started it all. And then once we did the cats, um, I went to the Smithsonian and I went to different zoos and museums (laughs) and I got heads of bears and of different species of dogs, African wild dogs and maned wolves and raccoon dogs and all sorts of different jackals and things like that. We dissected a red panda and all these different weasels and all of these different things. And over the last like couple, I guess more than a decade now, 
we've been stud we've been studying all of the different lineages of carnivores and publishing how their masticatory muscles are adapted for these diets. And then I started thinking like, we've got all these heads and this great data on heads, but all of my animals also have arms and forearms and hands right. and stuff. And so some of my students became really interested in, in applying our same muscle analysis techniques to, for instance, whether an, a primate is adapted for the trees or for the ground or for vertical life or horizontal, you know, postures and things like that. And so that's kind of been the main thrust, I would say about half of the research that we do in our lab is just looking at how muscle architecture um, tells us about the abilities, the functional abilities of those animals. There's a lot to unpack there and it's fascinating, but it, what's also interesting is we've crossed paths almost again. So I volunteered for a long time at the, what is now the Carolina tiger, um, rescue or Yep, Carolina Tiger Rescue, the artist formerly known as the Carnivore Preservation Trust. Correct. So <laughs> I was a volunteer at the Carnivore Preservation Trust, and I know that snow leopard. And they had a tiger who had epilepsy when I was there. And they had yeah. binturons, and they had a, a black jaguar. It was beautiful. Um, yeah. And... Um, and it was one of the, a special experience. So, so I've always been fascinated with carnivores and primates. I also got my start at the center for great apes and, Very cool. and that was because I was mad for gorillas. So I know we've, we've, we're going to come back to carnivores cause I'm fascinated. Um, and, and maybe some of the same muscles are involved, but I, I know that you did some work on, on gorillas and, and, and sort of bite size. So this gape, is that what that means? Like bite size is this gape of yeah, being so able to gape, open. Yeah. Gape is the amount that an animal can open its mouth. And you can think of it in terms of like angular gape, like, cause, cause the jaws are a hinge joint. Right. Mm -hmm. But also what's really important is what we call linear gape, which is basically just the amount of space in between the teeth. And that's really important because we're talking about placing food there. So that space needs to accommodate different sizes of food. Okay. So I love gorillas. So I want to know everything about what you learned about the architecture of the jaw of, of gorillas because they're herbivores, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they don't eat meat, but, um, they have a very large mouth from what I can tell. They're one, they're yeah. the largest of the great apes. Uh -huh. And so, uh, what can you, what can you tell me about my beloved gorillas? So the gorillas are the last species or the most recent species that we added to a series of studies that we have conducted on a variable that we call VB, so V sub B, which just stands for maximum ingested bite size. And what we mean by maximum ingested bite size is what is the largest piece of a specific type of food? So you, this is like contingent on, are we talking about carrots or sweet potatoes or watermelon? What is the largest piece of a given food that a specific animal will eat whole without biting it apart first. So in other words, imagine that you're eating like fruit salad and it's, if the pieces are cut small enough, then you'll just pop it in your mouth and chew it up and swallow. 
Whereas if the piece is really big, like maybe you're, you're like kind of feeling lazy and you just want to sort of chunk it up and put it on a plate, then you won't put, put a, a certain size piece of food directly in your mouth. You might bite it apart first, or if you're a human, you might use a fork and a knife or something like that. <laughs> okay. What, so, so what we're interested in is the, so we do this really fun experiment with the animals where we will feed them five pieces of food. So for instance, let's say we're feeding a primate cantaloupe. Like, so we started this out with lemurs. Mm -hmm. And so we might feed a primate, like a, uh, a lemur that is, you know, uh, like the size of a cat. We might feed it a piece of, of cantaloupe that is one centimeter on each side. So a little cube of, of cantaloupe and we'll feed it five pieces and we'll watch what that lemur does. If the lemur pops each cube into its mouth successively and chews it and swallows it, then the next day we'll come back and we'll feed it cubes that are two centimeters on each side. And we'll watch and see what happens. And if it's too big, then the lemur will bite it in half first, chew it up, swallow that, and then eat the other half. And if it does that to all five, then the next day we'll go back and we'll feed it cubes that are one and a half centimeters on each side. And we get to the point where the animal is basically going to eat some of them whole and like bites other ones. It's really funny because it's, it's almost, they're not thinking about this, but you can see that they're like a little bit stressed. Like this thing is kind of a little big that I'm shoving in my face, but I really want this cantaloupe. So we'll put it in. And We've done this for all the, these different types of foods. So everything from really hard foods like rutabaga or beets um, to soft foods like cantaloupe and cooked sweet potato and watermelon. And we found really cool things. So we figured out that animals that are adapted to eating fruit, they eat huge pieces of food compared to animals <laughs> that are just adapted for eating leaves. And the best example is um, a lemur called the ruffed lemur. So there are two species. There's the red ruffed lemur and the black and white ruffed lemur. And this is among the largest of the lemurs. And they are also among the most frugivorous of the lemurs. So they're super fruit specialists. And I love lemurs. Um, for many reasons, but lemurs are not really the brightest animals. They're kind of like a, <laughs> like a little bit like a dumb monkey, but they're super sweet and wonderful. And, and the reason that the Varicia is hilarious is because they will eat a piece of cantaloupe that is literally larger than their cranial capacity. So they, they can eat whole a piece of melon that's bigger than its own brain, which is both a comment on how small their brains are and also how much they love cantaloupe. And so we've studied this across all of these different lemurs and we've studied it in all these different monkeys from little pygmy marmosets all the way up to um, big you know spider monkeys. And we've done it in, um, in little apes. So we've done it in gibbons. And then um, most recently, we did it in a, the colony of gorillas at the Riverbanks Zoo. Um, and that was obviously, like you said, the largest primate. And it was really wonderful. It's wonderful doing research on all, all primates are really fun to do research with. Uh, gorillas in particular are wonderful. So they have this like amazing, like musty smell. Like some mm -hmm. people might find it like, you know, it's a little bit like an armpit, but there's something about it that it's like, it's just very natural. Yeah. And also gorillas are generally like really nice to each other. You know, they're not super like aggressive. Um, like chimpanzees can sometimes be like jerks to be around and gorillas are like really sweet. And so we studied it on this colony that had two males. They were kept separately and then three females. Another thing that's interesting about gorillas is that they have huge sexual dimorphism, right? So mm -hmm. the males are 
like twice as big as the females. And, you know, sometimes more than twice as big if you have a big male and a small female. And so we were able to study um, the huge bite sizes that they'll take. So like the, you know, a, a male gorilla can eat a piece of of melon that's like larger than your fist, like that, you know, without biting it apart first. <laughs> Whereas some of the little dainty females, they might eat smaller pieces. Um, well, you know, we try to be polite when we eat. We don't just polite. shove food into our face. Exactly. I mean, well, how fun that you get to give all of these different species tasty treats. And I did some novel food work with mouse lemurs. And they just like shove it if they want it, right? They shove it in their face and they, they just make all they're noisy chewers. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no politeness and, and, and they're really quite happy. I'm curious of all the different foods that you've provided to test your, your, um, the, this, this bite size hypothesis or maximum bite size. Mm -hmm. Um, was there any food that they just were like, ew, I don't like this. You know, it's that's a great question. And the answer is yes. And it's it's different for different individuals, not even like species by species, but some individuals were just like, I'm not interested in that. The most curious one. So we did our first bite size work at the lemur center a long time ago, over a decade ago, and they were a little bit looser with what they let us feed nowadays. That so so we're we're starting a new study there next week, actually. And they won't let us feed any fruits to the shafox. So, so the shafox are, are basically strictly folivorous, pretty much strictly folivorous lemurs. And at the lemur center, they're only allowed to get vegetables and the, and the, the special chow that's designed for their diet. But back then we gave them like whatever. And it was funny because the shafox actually, they weren't interested in the melon. They like kind of refused to eat the melon and some of the frugivorous lemurs, they would definitely not eat some of the vegetables that we gave them, even though they might be part of their normal diet, but they were always waiting for the better stuff. So we got, we learned like that you have to start with, the, it's like, like little kids, you have to start with the foods that, that they don't really want. And then you can build up to like the foods that they're looking forward to. And so, but yeah, there were definitely some foods that we like never got a proper um, bite size, uh, measurement for, you know, a specific individual of a specific food. Cause that, that just, they wouldn't eat it. The, uh, their cage mate, like the, you know, his girlfriends might like it, you know, <laughs> she'll, she'll, she'll eat all of the stuff, but he's like, no, I'm just not a cucumber guy. So right. well, yeah. and it, it's funny. Cause I used to, um, share lunch and I'm doing, putting air quotes, but I realized the listeners can't see that with, uh, when I worked at the center for great apes, you know, we would give lunch and, and at that time, one of the chimps was really young and I was uh, interacting with her and she was willing to share certain foods, <laughs> least favorite foods. Right. And, and I was, was like, Oh, thank you. And then I realized of her favorite foods, she would um, put it in her mouth first, coat it and spit and then offer it. Um, <laughs> knowing somehow that I would just be like, mm, no, but what was really fun. And I'm going to do this impression now was, uh, when she really ate like yellow peppers were one of her favorites. And that's mm -hmm. the one she would lick all over before she even <laughs> considered sharing. Um, she would be, ah, 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 you know, like these food grunts of joy. And I know gorillas do that as well. And I'm curious in all of your studies with these different species, you know, were there any that, that exhibited like pleasure, like pleasure sounds while they were eating that it was just like, oh my gosh, this is so good. 
I mean, as you know, as scientists, we're not supposed to think about the emotions of the animals or like, you know, we, we can just describe what we can see. But definitely there are times where it, it seems like, you know, they are they are getting pleasure from it or definitely like jealousy, right? If you're giving food to like one animal. So the best example of jealousy is, um, so there's a type of a lemur called the blue eyed black lemur. And they're amazing. They're one of the only primates, non-human primates that has true blue eyes. And the males are, have this really black fur and the females have this beautiful blonde fur and they have striking blue eyes. And like most lemurs, they are female dominant. So the females are in charge of the group, basically, and set the dominance hierarchy. And the blue-eyed black lemur is extremely female dominant. So sometimes the females just like, you know, gets the best seat in the house. In blue-eyed black lemurs, the female will like chuck the male out of the seat if she wants it. <laughs> and so when we're when we were working with them, it was sometimes impossible to feed the males anything because the females would just be like so aggressive about it and keep displacing them. And so they would definitely like, we couldn't really feed the males like some of the fruits because the females would like beat up on them if they got like the allocation of fruit. So we'd have to kind of surreptitiously do that. Um, definitely going back to those, um, the rough lemurs, it's wonderful to see them eat melon because they love, they love fruit. And I think they just love like sugary, juicy melon so much. And, and they wouldn't really vocalize, but what they would do is they would throw the, their heads back into the air and point their (laughs) mouth like up into the sky because Basically, what we think they were doing is we, we, we think that they didn't want any of the juice to drip out of their face. They wanted all of that juice to drip straight down their throat. And so they throw their heads back and their eyes would kind of close probably, you know, because the food was so big. So it was like just squishing up their whole face and they just like sit there and roll the food around and around and around in their mouth because they couldn't possibly swallow it until they had squeezed out most of the juice because it was such a huge piece. I love that. That's a wonderful story and a great imagery as well. Um, so, you know, I, before we move on to a couple other topics that I'm really interested in, because I know you're busy and we've, I've already had you for, for a long time and I'm very grateful for that. What are the biggest muscles that contribute, right? To like, what have you found are the most important muscles in the jaw that contribute to this sort of bite size or the force, um, you know, and, and where do humans fit in all of this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So the muscles that close the jaw are that. So it's called adduction, adduction. And then if you're opening the jaw, it's abduction. So in anatomy, whenever you're moving two like two parts of your anatomy together, it's adduction. So you're adding it together. Okay. And then if you're taking it away, so if you're moving your jaw away from your up from your base. Um, or if you're like moving your hand away from your body, that's abduction, abduction. And we always remember that because it's like you're abducting a small child. So you're taking it away. <laughs> and so the, the mandibular adductors, the ones that close the jaws are the temporalis muscle. So if you put your fingers on your temple and you chew down, that's the muscle that bulges right there. Huh? And then if you put your muscle on your cheek, 
that, that muscle there is called the masseter muscle. So those are the two biggest. And then there's a third one that you really can't touch. You have to kind of hook your finger around under your jaw on the inside, of, like on the inside and bite down. And that's a, a muscle called the medial pterygoid. And so those are the three muscles that close the jaw. And then there are a few muscles that open the jaw. So those are the muscles, um, they're called the digastric muscles. So sort of under your chin. And so if you force your jaw open, then you're firing the digastric muscles. And so we mostly study those adductors, the pterygoid, the medial pterygoid, the masseter and the temporalis. But my postdoc right now has this amazing paper about the digastric muscle where he has showed how that muscle is adapted in species that open their mouths really wide, like when they're yawning, or if they have really big canines, he can he, that they need to open their mouth wider, even to eat like a regular size piece of food. If you have really big teeth, you have to open your mouth that much wider to get that food into your mouth. And so he's shown a correlation of the anatomy of those jaw opening muscles to, um, to those different types of behaviors. And so, and really, as you were mentioning earlier, like, do, are they the same muscles? And those are the same muscles across basically all mammals. Some mammals have more elaborate ones. So humans have fairly elaborate masticatory muscles because we do elaborate things with our jaws. Like we can move our jaws side to side. We can move them a little bit front to back. Like if you move your lower teeth forward and backwards, and of course we move them up and down. A lot of animals, like especially the carnivores that we study, they really only open their mouths up and down. They can't move their jaws side to side or front to back. And that's because their teeth function much more like a pair of scissors right? So they have these sharp teeth that need to absolutely slide past each other. And like scissors, if that, like, have you ever tried to cut paper with a scissor joint that isn't like tight, like where it's wobbly and it just doesn't work. And so it's the same thing with carnivore jaws, that if their jaws don't come together perfectly, then they can't chew efficiently. And so they have enormous muscles, right? Their masticatory muscles are huge, much bigger than any of the primates, but they're simpler because all they have to do is the one thing, they just have to go up and down. Whereas our muscles are smaller, but we, but we have mu some muscles that pull the jaw to the left and some to the right and some to the front and some to the back. And so we have more control of, over those muscles. And that's actually like, a, that's a, a trade-off that we find in a lot of systems uh, throughout anatomy. So it's a, like a fundamental truth that you can have some systems that have a lot of um, little itty bitty muscles mm -hmm. and some systems that have fewer muscles, but are really big and strong. So for instance, we can play the piano. So we have a lot of little muscles in our forearms that allow us to like twiddle our fingers, but a tiger you know, has, has um, their forearms might be similar in size to us, but they're much stronger and their muscles are actually much more simple because they don't do as much elaborate stuff. Right. They don't twiddle their toes they on their prey. Their toes. They can just <laughs> whack an animal. Like when their claws come out, all their claws come out. Right. Whereas for us, we can move individual fingers. And so it takes more specialized muscles to move in specialized ways. And that's different from like how strong or how big a muscle needs to be. That's fantastic. What a wonderful insight. Like I, I just, I will think differently now about you know, when I watch my cat move or when he's, you know, that's right. He, I've never seen him just put out one claw and not the others and he can't. So yeah, they're physically uh, incapable of that. I didn't really think about that. Speaking of sort of twiddling fingers, I want to talk about one more little project on lemurs before we spend a few minutes 
you know, talking about the importance of mentoring students and, and some mm-hmm. of the work that you're doing in that regard. That's so important. So you have a recent paper and I love the name of it, um, called, um, uh, a primate with a panda's thumb. And it's about eye eyes. Now, I'm pretty well known around the Duke Lemur Center for my irrational fear of eye eyes. Um, so when I was doing novel object studies, I was just terrified of being locked in the dark with the eye eyes um, because I noticed they don't really have the same physical space boundaries that I do and are, have no problem sort of just coming up to your face, um, peering at you. And when you're, when I was dealing with sort of novel food or novel object, I was using things that, that they typically got treats in, but I didn't have treats. So there was this, um, I felt this undercurrent of resentment, uh, <laughs> that I was presenting them with things that would normally have treats and there was nothing in them. And so I ended up having an undergrad student be the one to go into the enclosure because I was too afraid and everybody made fun of me. Um, and most people, when they are studying IIs and their digits are really fascinated with that long finger that they use to tap, tap, tap and listen, um, for insects or grubs or, or, or how they fi- might find some food, but you focused on the thumb. So tell me about the thumb and what made you pay attention to that? Yeah. So the II is, I think, objectively speaking, the most amazing primate in of all, of all primates. So as you know, they're the largest nocturnal primate in the world. They are the only primate that does echolocation, so that tap foraging. So they tap, they can tap seven or eight times per second and hear the voids in that wood. Um, and then they use, they're the only primate with ever-growing incisors. So they use those ever-growing incisors to cut into that wood and then they stick that horrible middle finger into the, the hole and can fish out the termites. And um, I mean, they're, they're just really crazy. They are creepy animals. Um, and so we were, we've been wanting to dissect them for a long time. So their masticatory muscles are obviously amazing, right? So they, they do this amazing gouging behavior. They barely have any like molars cause they, they eat like really rich foods and they don't really chew them up. Um, they're very strange animals. And so we had this specimen. So they're, they're very rare in captivity. The lemur center has, I'm sure the largest colony, at least in the Western hemisphere, um, and there are only about 50 IIs in captivity in the United States. And so for a long time, we wanted to dissect them and study their masticatory muscles. And I also was really interested in their forearm muscles because they have those amazing tap foraging behaviors. It turns out, by the way, that their forearm muscles are not very extraordinary. They actually, they look very much like a lemur. And so the um, the neurology of that tap foraging is probably what allows them to do that much more. So like their fingers are not very much more specialized than a generic type of lemur, even though they are sort of the eye is the first lemur to split off and it definitely went down its own evolutionary pathway. Um, so, but we didn't know that at the time and we were dissecting the forearms of one of these really special specimens and the lemurs or sorry, the muscles of the forearm are really most of what they do is not in the forearm itself, right? A muscle does movement to a joint. And so 
the muscles of the forearm are really act on the wrist or they act on the fingers of the hand. And so in order to understand the muscles of the forearm, we had to trace them all the way down into the hands and into the fingers. And we are studying one of these muscles, so the abductor pollicis. So this is the muscle that allows you to hitchhike. So it's the muscle that allows <laughs> you to pull your thumb away from your hand. And we are tracing this muscle down into the hand and it split. It did something weird. So most of it, like about 80% of it went to the thumb, which is where it was supposed to go. And the other little bit of it went around to kind of the side of the wrist. And as we started looking at that, we figured out that it was going to this weird bone that humans don't have, a bone in the wrist called the radial sesamoid. So this little knobby bone at the base of the thumb. And as we really looked at that further, we found out that that knobby bone actually has a bit of cartilage on the end. And it's not, it's fairly substantial. It's like maybe a third of the length of the thumb itself. So pretty substantial. And then we noticed that there were two other muscles that were attached to that same bone and cartilage, but that were capable of moving that little nubby thing in different directions. All three muscles moved that thing in a different direction. And when we looked at other specimens and at the other side of that same, same individual, we noticed that that nub actually had its own fingerprint even. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, it was super cool. And what we had discovered was a structure that is referred to as the pseudo thumb, which means kind of like the next to thumb or like the kind of thumb, right? Mm -hmm. And to a great extent, you could call this the sixth finger of the II. So wow. super cool. Yeah. And so the II actually has basically an extra finger. And this is a rare structure that's found on some other mammals. So the most famous example is the panda bear. And the reason that pandas have a pseudo thumb is because they are they evolved from other bears. And the earliest bear didn't have a thumb. So it got bears got rid of their thumb. And that's because bears generally walk around on all fours like a dog or a cat, except bears, they put their, their feet closer together when they walk. And if you had um, a thumb, if you had a big toe, for instance, like so our big toes are in line with the rest of our toes. Mm -hmm. If our big toe stuck out like a chimpanzee's big toe, we would be stepping on it all the time because our <laughs> feet come too close together. <laughs> right. And so a lot of animals, including the bears, they got rid of that pokey outy bit, right? So they got rid of, <laughs> get rid of the thumb and put it in line with the rest of their fingers. But then millions of years later, one ridiculous lineage of bear started eating the craziest diet of any mammal, basically. So pan, uh, so uh, bamboo is essentially the worst thing that you can eat as a mammal. Sure. And so, and and it's terrible for a few reasons. It's hard to digest. It's very low nutrition, but also it's hard to hold on to. So we can hold on to them because we've got very graspy hands. But a bear that lost its thumb. It can't, it can't hold on to that pan, that, uh, that bamboo. And so what the panda did was it took this radial sesamoid, that same bone that the eye has, and it also added that little bit of cartilage the same way the eye did. And it mm. took the same three muscles that the eye took, and it, it basically reinvented a thumb wow. in its hand, in its wrist in the exact same way that the I did. And there are actually a few other rodents that do this. And so there are a couple other lineages that have done this. And the panda did it because their thumb is basically just another finger where, and they needed it to do thummy stuff. And so rather than splitting that 
extra finger off and remaking it into a thumb. They took something from the wrist and made it into a new thumb. The II did something completely different. So it has a proper thumb, but the problem is that all of the II's fingers are goofy. So II's have these super yeah. long fingers, especially the middle finger is crazy, but all of their fingers are really spindly and not really good at grasping. So the longer something is, the less forceful it can be, right? It loses yeah. the, that leverage. So short and stubby things can be strong. Long right. and spindly things are kind of weak. And yet an II is actually a relatively large lemur, right? It's not like a mouse lemur yeah, no. or a dwarf lemur or something. It's a pretty substantial animal. And so it evolved these crazy hands in order to do this amazing tap foraging that they do. But that came at the loss of the ability to grab stuff. And so okay. what we think happened is that they created this same kind of wrist structure that was found in these other lineages, especially the panda bear, in order to compensate for those super derived fingers um, that allow them to do that other amazing behavior. So and nobody it, ever noticed it because everybody's been so interested in those other crazy fingers that right. I think that people just never looked at the other part of the hand. That's that's really interesting. And so essentially the panda and the II converged on a solution to a problem. Um, yeah. So the problem is that a lot of mammals have lost thumbs because thumbs get in the way of stuff. But thumbs are also useful. And so if a lineage that has lost a thumb for whatever reason or can no longer use its fingers properly, but regains the need for a thumb, how do you do that? And yeah. so these animals converged on sort of that same solution. Fantastic. Um, I want to close with a very important topic, that, something that's really special to you, uh, and that is mentoring students. And so can you tell us a little bit about why you're motivated to mentor students and some of the really neat ways that you've been doing that with some of your projects? Yeah. So mentoring is really at this point in my career, a driving force. Um, and I think I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, and I think that the reason that I care so much about teaching and mentorship is because of the elevator pitch problem. So everybody knows that an elevator pitch is basically the idea that you have like 30 seconds or a minute to explain not only what it is that, that you do that's super cool, but why do you do it? Why should the person in the elevator care? And I can talk on and on in really interesting and fascinating ways about the II's pseudo thumb. And, you know, it was in the New York Times and I'm like, you know, and, and it gets a lot of, of coverage and, and, and media press. But in the end, I'm terrified of the question um, that I get all the time, which is, so that's kind of interesting, but how does that help the world? How does that make the world a better place? And the answer is, um, is kind of obviously... It doesn't really like knowing that the II has a, has an extra finger. Most people have never even heard of an II, so the the, the fact that it has an extra finger is not going <laughs> to change their lives. Right. But what does change their lives? The reason that studying these esoteric things it has been so wonderful for my career, and why I get so much enjoyment out of it is because the more esoteric something is, and the more bizarre and crazy and fascinating it is, the more students get hooked on it. And so, the, so these things that I study just turn out to be wonderful avenues that I have used to create opportunities for students to really learn the scientific method and to become, uh, to learn how to 
ask a question and we're asking questions about weird and wonderful things. And then how do you pursue that question? How do you evaluate it? How do you get the data you need? And I teach my students everything from articulating the question all the way to publishing papers. And so um, my students have published, you know, over a dozen papers and have presented at dozens of conferences. And we've gotten, you know, my students have gotten little like 500 and thousand dollar grants and overall, my students have gotten more than a quarter of a million dollars of these little grants to, wow. to support this kind of work. And so it's wonderful creating, you know, the next generation of scientists. And all of my students are super capable of, of teaching anatomy, right? And so mm -hmm. we always need doctors and veterinarians. And so I've, I've, I've trained a lot of students who are capable of teaching um, in vet schools or medical schools. Um, a lot of my students have become doctors and veterinarians. So in fact, the student that was a co-author on that interesting II piece, she is now training to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I guarantee that she can dissect, a, you know, she can tell surgeons about the anatomy of the forearm and the hand and the wrist better than any of them knew it, you know, when they were going through school. And she's published multiple papers on that subject. So well, that's really what, what I love. I mean, I love seeing eye eyes and I love seeing elephants and lions in the wild and lemurs in Madagascar, but there's nothing that excites me more than seeing it again through the eyes of my students and creating these wonderful learning opportunities for students. And it's just wonderful to be a professor and have that as like, that's what I get paid for, which is just a super cool thing. Well, and you know what, what comes out to me in listening to you is that in many ways it's come full circle from the days when you were informally mentored, mm -hmm. right? At that store and you're now, and I wonder if, um, what was the name of the store owner again? So Maxwell Mandible and the, my mentor back then, it was Ralph Cortez. Right. So I wonder if Ralph got that pleasure and joy through your eyes as you were making all of those discoveries that you're now doing. And so you're having such a, a big impact, not just in, in sort of the scientific field and what we're learning about the muscle architecture of how animals get the job done of eating and moving, but in inspiring and creating opportunities for others to discover their passion, to be part of cool research and to learn how science happens. And so, you know, I just feel really honored to have had the time to talk with you and learn more about what you're doing and, and, and have these wonderful um, types of conversations. So thank you so much for spending so much of your day with me and with my, uh, cat who, you know, was like, Hey, you're talking about me. I need to be involved here. So thank you. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I think it's really important that we, uh, talk passionately about the work and it's such an honor. Um, remember I like in a lot of respects, my story is a story of privilege. And so I think that the way that I try to pay it forward, all of the wonderful privilege I've had is by helping inspire these new generations. And I think it's really great to be able to talk to everybody about what it is that we do. And it's fun to tell these like weird and quirky stories about weird and quirky animals. Um, and hopefully, you know, somebody who's listening to this might think like how amazing it is that we can make a career of something like this and go and pursue it themselves. Thanks for listening, everyone. You know, this episode was packed with cool science and more than just about bite size. We learned that pandas are still ridiculous and eye eyes have goofy fingers 
and needed to co-opt a wrist bone to generate a new kind of thumb. Thanks for supporting the show. Please be sure to follow and share. And hey, even write a review if you have a moment to spare. To connect with Dr. HR, you can find links on the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show theme music, that's a big thank you to George Nardo of Luna Recording Studios in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs>